So, Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to life, to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they'll be sound in the faith, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Let's pray, shall we? So in verse 1, you'll see there, it says, Paul's aim is to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And Lord God, we pray that for each one of us here, that that might be true for us this morning, that you might further our faith, that you might further our knowledge of the truth about you, and that might lead to godliness in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you here were um, at the church weekend away last weekend, and it was a fantastic time. It was so good to spend, as Sarah said, the weekend with you, uh, to actually just have good, unhurried time to chat with people. Uh, If you weren't there, we missed you, but it was a great, great time. There was uh, great teaching, there was great fun, there was great times of prayer, there were great models of Windsor Castle made out of spaghetti and marshmallows. There was lots and lots of great things. But probably the highlight for me of the church weekend um, was the first act in the talent show on the Saturday night. There were some interesting acts. We won't talk about all of them. But uh, uh, the first one um, was amazing. And it was these, um, these girls, uh, little girls in our church, uh, uh, performing a dance uh, using sign language uh, to a Christian song. And the girls, they were mainly young. Uh, mainly just five and six years old, and then a couple of older ones, um, one of them Daisy, my older daughter, who's 12, and then Lizzie. And uh, you'll see the photo up there, but basically the older ones were partly there to sort of give the example of what to do. I'm doing it like that, it's pretty beautiful. Um, and um, and um, uh, for the little ones to follow, to follow the actions. Now, 
I loved it, partly just sort of the proud dad moment of seeing my daughter there um, and dancing so well, so gracefully, so beautifully. I don't know where she gets it from, but it's not from me. Uh, it's from my wife. That's where it gets it from. But um, more than that, actually, as I saw her up there, it felt a little bit like a visual picture, a visual picture of what I'm praying for Daisy. Praying for Daisy, that Daisy can be a positive role model to other people as she follows Jesus. Just as if you like, she was a, a, a positive role model to those little girls that were copying her every action. That, uh, my prayer is that Daisy can be an agent of transformation to others. And really, in a sense, that was a, a picture of what the whole church weekend was about. As we were all together, it, it was a picture, the, the sort of the aim of the church weekend was how, how do we, as people who follow Jesus, how do we be shining examples? How do we shine like stars? How do we have a legacy and leave a legacy which impacts other people for Jesus' glory? How can each one of us be agents of transformation in Jesus' name in this world? And really, that is the theme of this little book of Titus that we're looking at over the next three weeks. How can you and I, how can we be agents of transformation, both as a whole church and as individuals, you and me, how can we be agents of transformation for Jesus? Let's start, first of all, at the church level. How can, as a church, how can Holy Trinity Clapham, how can we be agents of transformation for Jesus? You see, this letter is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Titus, and they've both been preaching the good news of Jesus on the Greek island of Crete. Somebody's got to. And some people have become Christians, and Paul, he's now left Titus in Crete. Paul's gone elsewhere. And Paul is now writing to Titus. It's probably AD 63. He's writing to Titus, advising him on a strategy to be agents of transformation in Crete. And the question is, what is his strategy? What is his strategy of transformation? Well, verse 3, if you look at verse 3, it's preaching about Jesus. Naturally, we'd expect that. But what then? You preach about Jesus, then what do you do? What's your strategy? Well, verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see, Paul's strategy for transformation is very simple. It's church planting. That is his strategy, church planting. He says, preach about Jesus, make disciples, and then plant churches. He wants to see a church planted in every single town in Crete. And so when you and I, when we think about our, our vision, our strategy here at HDC, we would do well to look back at what the strategy was back then. You know, you will know if you've been here at this church any time at all, you will know our vision. It is to see every life bearing fruit for Jesus. We want to see that happen through trusting Jesus, transforming lives, and growing the church. Now, trusting Jesus, transforming lives, that is all about preaching about Jesus and growing disciples. But growing the church, that is all about a strategy for us to be a resourcing church, a resourcing church that plants churches. So please, please do not see church planting as a sort of tag-on little extra thing that we happen to do on the side as a church. No, it is right at the core. It is right at the core for HDC to increasingly be an agent of transformation for Jesus across not Crete but across South London. We need to be about church planting. How by the grace of God, 
We can play a significant part in reversing the decline in church attendance across South London as we see more and more people trusting in Jesus. Our strategy needs to have right at the center there, church planting. Now that's on the church scale looking out. What about being agents of transformation now? You'll see the second point there on the handout. What about within the individual church? What is Paul's primary focus to see transformation within the church? You know, what is the primary way that transformation is going to happen within HTC? And the focus, as we look at the next few verses, is on the leaders, isn't it? The church leaders are what I've called symbols of transformation. Uh, when I was, um, a few years ago now, when I was going through the whole sort of process to get selected to be a vicar in the Church of England, it takes a very long time, it's a complicated process, but in, in the process you are made to read all sorts of books, and uh, quite frankly, most of them are dire. Um, they're, they're most of them, they, they just make you want to just go, oh, let's give up, I don't want to do this at all. But um, there are a few books that are good, and I remember, I can't remember what book it was in, but there was one, one little phrase that has always stuck with me, uh, describing what a church leader should be. And the little phrase was this, that church leaders should be enabling examples. That a church leader should be an enabling example. And really that is what I mean by us being, church leaders being symbols of transformation. Being an enabling example. A church leader is someone who is to be an example to others, but not just an example, but an example that enables and encourages other people to be transformed by Jesus and other people to, again, be agents of transformation for other people. So just like Daisy in that, uh, you know, there she is at the front doing her moves uh, and, and encouraging, being an enabling example to all those little girls. That's the role of a church leader, to be an enabling example, a symbol of transformation. Now, obviously, not everyone here is going to be an HTC church leader. But neither are these next few verses that you're reading just a checklist about me, thankfully. Okay? You know, I haven't given you a scorecard, and I, you know, I'm going to go through it, and you've got the scorecard, and you've got all these different categories, and you're going to just mark me out of 10 as I go along. You know, preaching, 5 out of 10. Strategy, 6 out of 10. Hairstyle, 2 out of 10. Uh, and I don't make the grade, and you go off to St. Mark's Battersea Rise. That's not it, okay? I hope. Look at verse 5. It is elders in the plural. So it is a team of church leaders with a variety of gifts. And so I think it at least applies to the staff team, to the PCC, at the very least in a church like ours, to all the connect group leaders. Indeed, I think probably to all people who are teaching the Bible to people whatever age, whether teaching the Bible to adults or to children. And so as we look at these next few verses, I'd love you to have this in mind. Yes, it is a list that you should look at in terms of what you should look for in a church leader. But also, it is what we should all aspire to be if we want to be church leaders, or if we want to be connect group leaders, or if we want to be on the church staff or the PCC. It's what we should aspire to be. And it is what we should all be praying for church leaders. And the scorecard that Paul talks about, it has three areas, and the three areas might surprise you. Here's the first area. The first area is being a symbol of transformation in family life. In family life. Have a look at verse 6. 
Verse 6, an elder must be blameless. That doesn't mean being perfect, thankfully. It means having a good reputation. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, verse 6, it is not excluding people who are single from being church leaders because Paul himself was single. I personally don't think it's excluding women either from church leadership by talking about elders here as male. Christians differ on this. Personally, I think women can be elders because of, among other things, junior in Romans 16, Priscilla through Acts. But the main thrust of verse 6 seems to be saying that church leaders need to have a good, honorable reputation in our relational status, whether we are single or whether we're married. We're not known to be a flirt or worse. But more than that, here is the challenge for those of us who do have children. How can I, and this is relevant to me, I have children, how can I manage God's household well, the church, the connect group? How can I manage God's household well if I cannot manage my own household well? The home is the training ground for Christian leaders. See, if I'm domineering at home, if I'm exasperating my children, the likelihood is I will be domineering and exasperating leading the church. If I shirk my leadership responsibilities at home, the likelihood is I will shirk my leadership responsibilities at church. Home is a training ground for Christian leaders. And in some sense, I wonder if if helping with the children and the youth, HTC kids, HTC youth, I wonder if, in a sense, it is a similar training ground for all of us, whatever our relational status, whether we have our own biological children or not. Now, I'll be open with you about something. This is rather embarrassing to share, but on the church weekend away, there was one session on the church weekend. It was on the Sunday morning, the first session. And in the middle of the session, we were asked um, to just take 30 seconds just to jot down a score out of 10 for our culture of encouragement. Okay, so how encouraging we think we are as an individual to people around us. And so we were given 30 seconds to do this, and I jotted down, and I'll tell you what I wrote. I wrote down uh, church seven. I thought I'm fairly encouraging in the church, I think. Uh, I think I'm fairly encouraging, so I'll give myself a a seven out of ten. But then I wrote in tiny, weeny little writing, because I didn't want the people around me to see. I'd written church seven in perfectly big, normal handwriting. Then I wrote in tiny, weeny, absolutely minute handwriting, so no one could see. I wrote home two. Church seven, home two. And that is the challenge to me, because I recognize, just as that question was asked, actually so often I am not particularly encouraging at home to Susanna, particularly to the children. Often discouraging, often telling them off, often in a grump with them for whatever it might be. And it was a real challenge for me. It is a challenge for me because the best and most important reference for a church leader is what goes on in their home life. Second area for being, an age, uh, being a symbol of transformation is in the uh, area of character. Character. You see, the mark of a good church leader has very little to do with their skills and their talents. Very little at all. You know, we might think that the best thing would be to have a vicar or to have a connect group leader who's as funny as Michael McIntyre, who's as intellectual as Stephen Hawking, and who has the prophetic gifts of, um, of Doctor Who. But actually, Paul does not focus on gifts at all. He focuses 
on character. Character. Look at verses 7 and 8. What unites verses 7 and 8 is that they are all about how we can lead ourselves. How we can have control of ourselves. Similar to the family arena, the question is, how can we have a good handle on the church if we don't have a good handle on ourselves? And I don't know about you, but all these characters, character areas listed, they are a challenge. Just look at them. Just read them. Verse 7 there. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, hospitable, loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. They are a challenge. And for many of you here, as I look out, there are many leaders in the church here. I want to ask you right now, are there some of that list there? I think there's about 11 or 12 things there. Are there some of that list, maybe just one thing, that right now God, by his spirit, through his word, is challenging you over today, now, right now? One of those. Because those of us who are leaders in this church, there is a sense that we are enabling examples to others. Like Daisy is to those little girls on the stage. How are we living? What is the example we are setting to others? And then the third area where we're symbols of transformation as church leaders is in terms of doctrine. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, The church leader must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You see, there actually is only one skill that a church leader needs. One skill, and that is to teach the gospel well. And even that is not really a skill because more than sort of having hugely entertaining stories and being being hugely engaging when you preach or you lead a connect group, actually the key to teaching well is teaching that is accurate. Look at verse 9 again. It's about encouraging with sound doctrine and refuting those who oppose the gospel. And there are plenty of people who oppose the gospel both outside the church but also even inside the church as the next verses make clear. So all of us, what should you look for in a church leader? What should you aspire to if you aspire to be or if you are already a church leader? And what should you be praying for, for church leaders, including the leaders in this church? I want to ask that the things that we are focusing on are that the church leaders might be symbols of transformation, that we are enabling examples in the areas of family life, character, and doctrine. And that leads to our final point. And this final point, it is relevant to us all, whether we're a church leader or not. This is for all of us. And it is, what is the source of transformation? What is the source of transformation? You see, false teaching that the last paragraph talks about, false teaching is not just an encouragement to live a wild life and sort of be drunken, be unhospitable, be violent. You know, the opposite of verses 7 and 8. That is false teaching, but it's not the only form of false teaching. False teaching also can be very legalistic. And I think that's what's going on in Crete. If you just look at verse 10, 
Look at verse 10. The main warning lights that are flashing in Crete around false teaching are this circumcision group who seem to be saying that to lead a good godly life, you need to believe in Jesus plus you need to get circumcised. If you want to be a good godly Christian, they are saying you've got to get circumcised. They are adding to the gospel. And here's the danger. When we add to the gospel message, when we add in extra criteria to believing in Jesus, when we add in extra things to say that is the measure of your godliness, when we add in you must read your Bible every day, you must take communion every week, you must go to focus every year, you must go on the leadership course at HTC, whatever it might be, when we say it's the gospel plus something that we must do, if any of those things become our measure of godliness then they also become our limit of godliness. So we start thinking, well, because I've done this thing, because I've gone on the leadership course, then I'm godly. I've gone on the leadership course, then I'm godly. That's the measure of my godliness, so I don't need to worry about any other area of my life. And actually, we start becoming just like the culture around us. That's what's happening in Crete. This poet, Epimenides, I would think he'd been very popular down his local pub, him saying all the Cretans, they're liars, evil brutes, glazy gluttons. But that is what people are becoming because of the false teaching. They're saying, I'm doing this one thing. I'm getting circumcised. Actually, the rest of my life, I just become like the culture. You see, being externally legalistic limits godliness. It limits godliness because being externally legalistic has no power at all to transform us. It can't, just by sort of externally having some rules, it can't make us more like Jesus. Because verse 14, they are merely human commands. You know, I can can clean my car. I, I can polish my car all I want, and it does need a lot of cleaning and polishing. I can stick Go Faster stripes on it. I can stick a picture of Lewis Hamilton on it. I can do some big sort of snazzy uh, silver alloy wheel hubcaps or whatever. I can do all that. But if it's got no fuel in it, it has got no power. It's not going anywhere. And it is the same for you and me. We can put all these external legalistic rules. We can do all the equivalent of the alloy hubcaps and the Go Faster stripes. But actually, if nothing's going on inside, then there is no power. There is no power to transform us. It's got to be on the inside. And I wonder if you noticed how Paul, he uses a few words and he repeats them at the start of this passage and at the end of this passage as a kind of contrast. Just look, the three words that he repeats are the words command, true, and lie. If you look at the last paragraph, he talks about those following external rules, those just being legalistic. And he talks about following human commands, rejecting the truth, being liars. But at the very start of the passage, as he introduces his whole letter, he uses these same three words, command, true, lie, and he doesn't use them negatively, he uses them positively. Just look, would you? Same words, verse 1, the truth that leads to godliness. Verse 2, God who does not lie. Verse 3, the command of God, our Savior. And that is where the power is. That is where the fuel is for your life and for my life to be transformed. Internally, us knowing God internally, that leads to external godly living. Verse 1, a knowledge of the truth internally. That leads to godliness externally. If you like, it's the difference between should 
and want. Between should and want. Let me explain. Externally, external sort of legalistic rule following says, I should be patient with so-and-so because that's what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. I should be patient. But internal, real faith says, I want to be patient with so-and-so because I know God's in control and I know God's been patient with me. External, legalistic rule-following says I should invite my friends to come along on Clapham Sunday because Jago's told me to. Internal, real faith says I want to invite my friends to come along on Clapham Sunday because I long for them to hear the best news ever of Jesus' love for them. External, legalistic rule-following says, I should do good to those around us because those are the kind of standards I've got to keep on setting. But internal, real faith says, I want to do good to those around me because God has first done such good things for me. Do you see the difference? External legalistic rule following. I should do this. I ought to do it. Internal real faith. I want to. I want to. It starts internally. And what is going on internally? It is bubbling up in me and it is overflowing. I want to do these things. And that is where the power is. That is the source of transformation. That is the fuel for you and me, a knowledge of the truth inside us experiencing the wonder of the gospel by the power of the Spirit, experiencing that internally, and that leads to godly living externally. Professor Niall Ferguson is a professor of international history. He was at Oxford University. He's now at Stanford University in the States. And he's written about the 19th century. And he said this. He said, it might be said that the moral transformation of the entire British Empire began in Holy Trinity Church on the north side of Clapham Common. Now just look at that statement. That is quite a statement, isn't it? It began here, where we're all sitting. It began here, the moral transformation of an entire empire began here. Now, is he right? In a sense, yes, he is right. He's not a Christian, but he recognizes that the transformation of a city, a country, even an empire, it begins with the church. The local church is the ultimate agent for transformation. So in a sense, he's right. But in a sense, he is not totally right. For this church did not just say, here are some sort of moral external rules, and these external rules, they are going to transform the empire for the better. No, the source of power was internal. It was an internal experience, knowledge of the truth of the gospel that led to external godliness. 
And it was as a whole group of Christians, the people that were in this church, as a whole group of Christians led by some church leaders, ordained and lay, the Clapham sect, Venn, Wilberforce, Thornton, who were symbols of transformation. They were enabling examples. They were symbols of transformation in their family life, in their character, in, in their doctrine. It was through them that transformation in Jesus' name took place as they preached the gospel as they made disciples, as they planted churches like All Saints Clapham Park in the 1850s, and so they looked to do good. And that was their strategy for transformation back then. It started internally, and it worked itself out externally. And that is still exactly our strategy for transformation today. We have the same strategy And my question to you is, will you continue to be a part of that strategy for transformation? It is the most powerful transformation there is, and it starts in here. It starts internally as God works in us, in our minds and our hearts, as we experience the wonder of the knowledge of the truth of the gospel that will lead you and I to godliness, to godly living, to be agents of transformation, both as individuals and as a church. Will you be a part of that?